Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to begin in verse 13. 1 Samuel 16, verse 13. And let's stand together and pray together. And the reason I'm asking you to stand is because your mind can only take what your seat can endure. So let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for what you're doing in Joseph and Rachel's life. And Lord, as they get remarried to each other today, God, we pray that you would really bless them. And Lord, what a tremendous story of your faithfulness. And as we open up your word right now, God, we ask that you would speak to us. Lord, we ask that your spirit would lead us and guide us in truth, that you would impact us. We want to gain a greater understanding of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Training camp in the world of sports is not the most glamorous, but it is important. It's a lot of where the work is done leading up to the season. I read an article yesterday about a man, his name is Joe Borden, he's actually called Eagle Joe, and he went to training camp with the Philadelphia Eagles as a fan for 40 years. 40 years he came faithfully to training camp. He was so faithful, in fact, that Buddy Ryan said, I'm going to give you a sideline pass every year. That's pretty cool. He, so here he is on the sideline every year. When you come to training camp, you're going to see Eagle Joe. It turns out that he went blind. He went legally blind. He wasn't going to be able to drive to training camp. He still wanted to go to training camp. So the Philadelphia Eagles, they set up a limousine to go get him a couple of times through the summer so that he could come to the camp. He's now passed away, but you think about all those years of him watching training camp. And today, this morning, in our Bible study, we get to watch King David in training camp. He's not king yet. He's been anointed by God. He's a shepherd out in the fields, if you remember last week. Why did God choose to anoint David? Because he was a man after God's own heart. He was a worshiper. He was a man of faithfulness. God's always moving forward. He's a forward motion God. Even though Saul is in compromise, God is moving forward in the future. And then the second half of chapter 13, God brings David into the presence of Saul. David begins to serve Saul, and this is going to be David's training camp. He's already been being equipped as a shepherd. Now he's entering into a more official training, and this training camp is going to go on for years in David's life. It's going to be a hard road before he actually becomes king, and this is what I'd hope that we'd realize and see in our lives this morning is that, church, we're in training camp. God's doing something in our lives. And there's a Saul in our life. There's a Saul type of situation. There's a difficulty that God's saying, I want to teach you. And a lot of times, I'm not learning. I don't see my life as being in a training camp. You know what I see my life as? As a survival camp. Do you ever feel that way? I'm just trying to get through. I'm trying to get through the day, trying to get through the week, and God's saying, Eric, slow down. I want to teach you. So as we observe David's training camp, let's be aware of our training camp as well. We'll review verse 13 and then get to verse 14. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. The emphasis that the spirit of God has now come upon David. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. So do you see the contrast there? David receives the spirit of the Lord as the new future king, 
And Saul, in his compromising state, now has the Spirit of God depart from him. This is a tragic verse in the scripture. It's similar to what we saw in the life of Samson. God's Spirit departs from him because of his compromise. What was the compromise in Saul's life? Well, it began first where he took on the office of a priest by giving an offering to the Lord, a burnt offering. He compromised by not completely destroying the Amalekites when he was ordered to do so. He built a monument of himself in the midst of all of this compromise. He was extremely selfish, focused upon himself, and things are moving forward in his compromise where now the Spirit of God departs from him. There's a change after Jesus died on the cross and rose again with the Spirit of God in the life of a believer. We now are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the Spirit of God indwells us. That's not a relationship that the Holy Spirit had with people prior to Christ's death because we weren't cleaned. They weren't in a place where Christ had paid for their sin, so God couldn't live inside of them. But right now, if you're a believer, the Spirit of God lives inside of you. He lives inside of me. What a tremendous gift that, that God has given to us. But in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon an individual, not in an individual, for service, and then at times the Spirit of God would move off of them because of their compromise. It goes a step further. If it's not bad enough that the Spirit of God departs from Saul, God sends a spirit, specifically it's from the hand of God, to distress King Saul. I think it's fitting that he did receive a spirit that would distress him because Saul, in his compromise, he would distress God's people. Remember what Jonathan said? about his dad, this guy troubles the land. He's causing difficulty for everyone. And now God says, you reap what you sow. Here's this distressing spirit. So this then raises a lot of questions. You ever study the scriptures and go, wow, that's interesting. I don't know if I fully understand that. What is this distressing spirit from God? Is it an angel? Is it a demon? It's clearly a spirit. And so some believe that it was an angel that was sent to distress Saul. Some believe that it was a demon. And then that then causes some more questions is what is God doing sending a demon? And we have to understand that there is a real enemy. I think that you all know that and understand that. And we do know from scripture that Satan is underneath God's feet. It's not that Satan just gets to do everything that he wants to do. Satan comes to God in the book of Job and asks permission to bring trial into Job's life. So God grants permission. He had to get permission from the Lord. So God is over the demonic realm and at times even can use the de demonic realm whenever he pleases for his particular purposes. So I'll let you wrestle through that today, whether you think it's an angel or you think it's a demon. But I wanna bring in some personal application. If you're a follower of Christ and you've been walking in compromise, I think that you can relate to this kind of distress. Not necessarily a spirit that is distressing you, but God has a way of getting our attention by allowing us to reap what we sow. Not every trial, not every difficulty is because of compromise. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, but the Bible also says the way of a transgressor is hard. We all have our own personal experience with that. I remember God getting a hold of my life in high school and then struggling and compromising in, in that season. And I would come into church like this and there was a certain element of distress. 
there was a certain element where I knew that this particular area of my life wasn't right with the Lord because I was walking in compromise. And it's a miserable place to be, isn't it? Why is God doing this to Saul? Is God just like, I'm going to get you, I'm going to torture you, you've compromised so bad, here's this distressing spirit. God wants Saul to repent. That's always God's purpose. Saul could have turned back to the Lord as he experienced this distress. He'd already been rejected as king, that's already happened, but he could have gotten right with the Lord. And would you get right with the Lord this morning? Would you go, you know what, I want something deeper. I want to be back in that place of authenticity with with the Lord. Let's go on into the next verse. And Saul's servants said to him, surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. This is interesting because his servants, those that were close around him, they knew exactly what was going on. They could see Saul's spiritual condition, that he had a distressing spirit from God, but we don't see Saul seeing his own spiritual condition. That's the case most of the time. This week, during the midweek, Tuesday, Wednesday, and and Thursday, our pastoral staff here from RMC, we went up to Breckenridge and had some time together in in a cabin. We sought the Lord, prayed, confessed areas of brokenness in our own life, and prayed for each other, prayed for you, prayed for vision, God's direction in our church. And on the way up there, we stopped and watched the, the movie War Room. Now, if you haven't seen it, I'm going to ruin it for you right now, okay? Well, I'll try not to ruin it too much for you, but really there's two main characters uh, in, in this movie, and it's a husband and wife. And the husband has no idea about his own spiritual condition, but his wife can see it. The wife also can't see her own spiritual condition, but this acquaintance that she meets through a business relationship is a believer and can see her spiritual condition. And that's kind of where it begins the movie and breakthroughs happen when they do realize, oh, this is exactly where I'm at with the Lord. And I think a lot of times in our lives, we can't see it. Our spouse can see it, our friends can see it. Another believer can see it, but we can't see our own spiritual condition. It's our blind spot. And what if this morning, if the Holy Spirit just started to begin to speak to us and say, Eric, this is where you're really at. Church, this is where you're really at. Brother, sister, this is is where you're really at. Saul didn't see his own spiritual condition. In verse 16, let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall be that he will play with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you and you shall be well. The servants want relief for Saul. There was a a physical distressing that was coming upon Saul in this experience. So they say, let's get someone who's really good at playing the harp. And as they play the harp in the king's presence, there'll be relief. But notice that this is relief without repentance, isn't it? This is just dealing with the surface, a a momentary relief without getting to the core of the issue that Saul needs to get right with God. If he really wants refreshment, lasting refreshment, then he must return to that place of intimacy with God. A lot of times I think that's what we settle for. I just need a little bit of relief. And we'll look for it in a variety of different places. If I can just get the physical part of my life all together, and I can work out, and I can eat right, and that will give me some relief. If I can just put on some classical music and have a moment of relaxation, maybe I'll come to church. 
And if I could just have a little bit of relief by singing and being in God's presence and hearing God's word, I'll be refreshed in my soul. Now, is there anything wrong with the physical and working out? No, it's a good thing. Is there anything wrong with eating right? Well, absolutely, no. There's, there's nothing wrong with, with eating right. Is there anything wrong with coming to church? No, not at all. But what if it's just a short temporary fix with not dealing with the root of the problem? We're just getting out our harp. We're just getting away from the real issue that we need to get right with the Lord. However, this does show that there is a real power in worship and music. In worship and music. David's going to be the one who's going to play the harp. He's a man of God. He's going to play his instrument to the Lord. It's, it's worship. And as we enter into worship, there is refreshment that takes place in our lives. As we gather together, we put a large emphasis on worship, of singing to the Lord, entering into God's presence. The worship's not just the warm-up to the message. That's not it at all. Because that's when God does some of the greatest work in our lives. Psalms 150 says this, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in mighty firmament. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent graceness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the lute and the harp. Praise him with the timbrel and the dance. Praise him with the stringed instruments and the flutes and the electric guitars and pianos and banjos. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Every instrument is ultimately designed by God. God gave people the creativity to come up with those instruments, and they were meant to be expressed to the Lord, and God moves inside of that. Revelation 14 describes there being instruments in heaven, and I heard a loud voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of a loud thunder, and I heard the sounds of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. I can't imagine all the instruments in heaven around the throne room of God. I might actually be able to play a few. It's going to be wonderful, and it's going to be glorious. The enemy also knows how powerful music is. Yesterday, I was reading in my devotions in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar builds a gold statue of himself, wants everybody in the kingdom to bow down to him. So what does he do? He gets out the band, and they begin to play, and they are playing in harmony, and that music moves people, and they're moved to bow down. The enemy gets people to bow down in that way. You ever stop and think about all of the music and the message of the music that is being drilled into us? The truth be told is we're probably not going to remember a whole lot from this message, but we will remember the song that was being played as we drove in this morning. The song that we're listening to as we go home this afternoon. You don't even have to work at it. It just gets planted inside of your soul. You can hear an old song from when you were back in high school, and it takes you back to that moment, right? It comes on, you lean back in the chair, and you're beginning to sing it, and in your mind, you're back at that high school prom your junior year, and you're singing to Chicago with tears in your eyes, aren't you? <laughs> Some of you are like, Chicago? I thought that was a city. You mean it's a band? I'm surprised by this. But music is powerful, 
And the enemy gets his message out in music, but much more so is created for God's glory. This harp coming in to be played for Saul shows us how powerful music and worship is. In verse 17, so Saul said to his servants, provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. So Saul agrees. Then one of the servants answered and said, look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing and mighty of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and handsome person, and the Lord is with him. That's quite a resume. It's speaking of David. Jesse's son, the Bethlehemite. First thing that we see is that he's skillful in playing. This tells us about the character of David. He took seriously his instrument as a worshiper to the Lord. I don't think that David took playing the harp seriously because he's like, someday I'm gonna play for the king. I'm gonna be on the voice. Yeah, this is gonna be incredible. I better, I better practice. I'm gonna get my opportunity. He was in love with the Lord. He loved playing to the Lord. He loved doing what he did with excellence unto the Lord, and God used it. Is there something that we can learn from this about the character of David? Is whatever your hand finds to do, do it wholeheartedly unto the Lord. Do it with excellence. You may be a school teacher. Do it with excellence. A graphics designer. Do it with excellence. A homemaker. Do it with excellence. A mom, a dad. Do it with excellence. An accountant. Do it with excellence. God will use that excellence. Psalms 33 verse 3 says, sing to him a new song and play skillfully with a shout of joy. That was David. But he was also a mighty man of valor. Valor means courage in the face of danger. Part of David's character, even as a young man, is that he was willing to take courage and go into a place of danger. When we think of valor, we often think of heroic acts, but I think a lot of heroic acts in our culture are found in the mundane things of life. Men, it takes valor to stay committed to our families, to love our wives, to provide for our kids, to be faithful in service to God's church in simple ways, that's a mighty man of valor. Women, it takes valor, it takes courage to stay committed to your husbands, committed to your kids, to go countercultural. It takes a lot of valor to go to work and be faithful. You're single, it takes a lot of valor in the midst of the dangerous society that we live in to say, I'm committed to Christ, I'm gonna live for Christ. Students, college students, junior high, high school students, it takes valor to live out your faith at, at your school. A lot of times the valor that we're looking for, these heroic acts are found in the very mundane little things of life. Also, David is called a man of war. How do you picture King David? A lot of times it goes back to the, the Bible books, you know, the, the ones that we read as, as young kids, the picture books. And you've maybe seen a, a picture of David, and he's a, he's a little 10-year-old. He's like this little weenie guy. <laughs> Got him! Yeah, this was great. But what does the Bible say? He's a mighty man of valor. He was a man of war. So this puts him in his teenage years somewhere, a young adult years. But he's not this little puny guy taking his glasses and he's like, you know, let's see if I can get lucky with this Goliath guy. He was someone that was proven in battle. He was someone that had already gone to battle at this point in his life. 
How does that apply to us? How do we become a person that's proven in battle? It's a spiritual battle. It's being someone who prays, who enters into that battle and says, I'm gonna stand on the word of God. I'm gonna go to God and ask that God would bring a, a victory in this particular situation. One that's convicting about David as this young man is that he was prudent in speech, prudent in speech. So we put together this full picture of David. He's a warrior, he's a worshiper, and he's also careful with his words. That's what prudent means, to be thoughtful, to be careful. He had a filter on his mouth. Oh, to have a filter on our mouths, right? <laughs> we could share stories for the rest of the day of, oh, I wish I wouldn't have said that. It'd be great to be able to be able to grab some of those words and put them back in, but they're out there. They're out there. When it comes to somebody who is going to be in the king's presence, he has to be prudent in speech. You don't want this young man just flapping his mouth all of the time. The heart is revealed through the mouth. The mouth reflects the heart, and David was a man who was careful with his words. The most important is the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. Is the Lord with you or just David? Is God just with David because he's going to be the next king of Israel? Part of the new covenant of grace is that Jesus promises, he says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Lo, I'm with you till the end of the age. Where do we find the strength to be able to try to do what we do with excellence? Because God's with us. Where do we find the grace to be able to stand in battle because the Lord is, is with us? He's with us. How do we find the self-control to be prudent in speech? Well, the Lord is with us. The Lord's there going, no, don't say that. Okay, it's time, time to speak. Verse 19, therefore Saul sent a messenger to Jesse and said, send me your son David who is with the sheep. David doesn't manipulate the situation. He doesn't try to get to the throne. He doesn't try to move things forward. After he's been anointed as king, he goes back to taking care of the sheep. That's many times what God does in our lives. He says, I'm calling you, I'm equipping you, I'm training you, but you're gonna go back with the sheep. We don't know how long this period was before David gets called up to be in the presence of Saul. God is raising David up. Verse 20, and Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. God's hand. Saul has favor upon David. I wonder if David had any idea, there's no way that he could have known how much trouble Saul was gonna be in his life. Saul's gonna end up trying to kill David many times. There's no way that Saul knew that this was his replacement. This is God's doing. This was God's working. This is David's training camp. He's going to learn how to be a king by watching the mistakes of King Saul. God puts him in the right spot at the right time and says, get to know this guy. You're going to be his trusted armor bearer. Don't we learn the most by mistakes, our mistakes and the mistakes of others? Here's one of the harsh realities of parenting is our kids will learn much more from our mistakes than our successes. They'll watch our mistakes, they'll grow up, and they'll say, oh, I don't want to do that, right? We all do it. We, we look at our parents and we go, oh, we're thankful for this, we're thankful for that, but oh, I, I wouldn't want to do that. 
And David gets a front row seat here of the arrogance of Saul. What not to be as a leader, what not to be as a king. This is totally the Lord's hand. Verse 22, then Saul sent to Jesse saying, please let David stand before me for he has found favor in my sight. If you just read 1 Samuel 17, if someone tells you this amazing story about David and Goliath and you don't have the background of chapter 16, you'd think that David is a complete stranger to Saul. That David just kind of walks into Saul's tent and says, hey, I'll do the Goliath thing. I think that God can defeat the the giant. However, Saul and David have a rich history. They know each other well. David's playing in his presence. David's the armor bearer of Saul. We end with verse 23. And so it was whenever the spirit from God was upon Saul, this distressing spirit, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. The power of praise, the power of worship, the power of music used to be played to God. Here's Saul in this reprobate spiritual condition, but yet there is still some temporary refreshment that comes from worship. So here's the challenge. Here's the invitation. If by God's grace this morning you're walking with the Lord, there's not this huge compromise in your life, how much more does praise have the potential for refreshment in our lives? How many times is Satan ripping us off from experiencing the joy of the Lord because we don't enter into praise and worship? We don't lift our voice to God. We don't express our our love to God. If you've got an instrument to play that instrument unto the Lord, not for any other reason but to glorify God. I think that Satan will do everything possible to keep us out of the presence of God in worship because that's what we were created to do. That's where refreshment comes from. That's where connection comes from. And we have an invitation 24-7 to come into the presence of God. You can get some speakers, hook them up in your kitchen, put on some worship music through your phone, through your computer, through a CD. If you still have a CD player, Lord bless you. Cassettes? No, no cassettes. And you begin to worship the Lord. In your car, allow your car to become your sanctuary. In the shower, here here at church, one of the things that is really important for me individually, for my family, for us as a church, is that we would be worshipers. That we would be those that seek the Lord in worship. Jesus said it's an amazing promise that he seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. We think about us seeking God, but God is seeking those that will be worshipers. He will run to a worshiper that's seeking him in truth and in their spirit, responding to God. God, you're good. I love you. Thank you for dying for me. You're incredible. I want to draw near to you. And we're a truth-driven church, which I'm so thankful for. We study the word. But wouldn't it be a shame if we studied the word of God and we didn't digest it and respond to it? We read it, we study it, we share it, we give it away to others. Some of you, you've gone through 1 Samuel so many times. You've heard so many studies on 1 Samuel. The book of Romans, you've taught through the book of Romans. We've got scripture memorized. Some of you are just getting introduced to the word of God. But what if we get into the word of God, we learn about who God is, but we don't respond in worship. 
Worship was powerful in Saul's life, and he was in a compromising state. It was just a temporary relief. What could it be in my life? Isaiah 40 says this, Wait upon the Lord, and you will renew your strength and soar upon eagles' wings. That's not just a verse I want to know in my Bible. That's something I want to experience. How about you? To really know what it is to, to wait upon God in his presence, to pour out our love to the Lord. Oftentimes, as we do that, then we walk away refreshed. God renews our strength. So as we close this morning, let's do that. We're going to sing a last song, and instead of rushing out to be the first in line to pick up our kids or to get pole position in the parking lot, say, God, I'm going to worship you. I see what worship did in Saul's life. I'm going to worship you. And as we pray and as we go into this last song, it's an opportunity to respond to the Lord, which is worship as well. And if you need to come back to the Lord, if you feel that distress that's upon your soul because you're not right with God, you're God's child and you've walked away, there's going to be a prayer team here on the sides in the front and come down and say, would you pray with me? I need to get right with God. God wants to change hearts. He wants to change lives. But you need to respond. Respond to him. Say, I don't want to go out with this distress that I brought in. Do you need to receive Christ as your Savior? you need to come to him? What does it mean to be saved? It's really simple. It's this, that we're sinners, which means we've missed the mark. If you were trying to shoot at a bullseye and you missed the the bullseye just by a little bit, then that makes you a sinner. If you were to have three people that were to leave from Newport Beach in Southern California and try to swim to Hawaii, one might be a really good swimmer, one could be average, the other doesn't know how to swim, guess what? None of them are going to make it. And when it comes to God's perfection, none of us are going to make it. We all fall short. You may be better than your neighbor, you may be better than your brother, but you're not better than God, which puts us all in that place where we need grace, and that's what God did for us. I'm a dad. I'm a dad of four kids. We did some shoe shopping. It was time for the kids to get some new shoes. We were at Walmart, and our three-year-old son, he got some Spider-Man shoes, and they light up. He loves Spider-Man. For his birthday, we said, what do you want for your birthday? He says, Spider-Man cake. So he saw these shoes in the aisle. He's got them on, and they're lighting up, and his world is lit up, and me as a dad, and seeing my kids in these new shoes, this simple thing, it brings me joy. And I got to tell you guys, I love you guys as a church family, but I wouldn't give one of my kids for the whole lot of you. You know, I just wouldn't do it. But God gave his only son because he loved you. So how do you respond? You respond by crying out in faith, Jesus, I believe you're God, that you died for my sin and rose again. I see my need for for salvation. So as we go to prayer right now, I want to give you an opportunity to receive Christ. I want to give you an opportunity to to get right with Christ and respond to him. So let's pray together. Father, we we come before your throne right now, and God, we just ask that you would touch hearts and that you would change lives. This first invitation is to believers. You've trusted Christ for salvation, but you need to come back to him. Would you raise your hand, symbolizing that you're coming back to the Lord? You're acknowledging that distress in your life. Just lift it up. Praise the Lord. Hands coming up through the sanctuary. If God's touching your heart, Just raise your hand to the Lord. I'm going to pray for you. Father, you see these hands. Lord, that's so wonderful. It's so powerful. They're returning to you. They're acknowledging the distress in their life because of compromise. God, would you restore them? Would you pour your grace upon them? 
Would you allow them to feel your love in a fresh way? You can put your hands down. And if you've never received Christ as your Savior, you've never seen your need to, to be saved, and you're going, wow, God gave his son for me. He loves me that much. Jesus died for my sin. I want to put my faith in Christ and receive his forgiveness. Would you raise your hand? Just hold it up, and I'm going to pray with you. So respond to the Lord this morning, if that's you, that says, nice and high so I can see you. Praise the Lord. Praise God. I see your hands here. Anybody else that says, I'm going to receive God's love, his grace and forgiveness. Praise God. Pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I believe that you're God, that you died for my sins and rose again. I receive your forgiveness. Take control of my life. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me. You can put your hands down. Father, as a church family, we just thank you for those that have responded to you. Lord, would you bless them and would you encourage them and protect them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord.